We are in the uh, book of Daniel, chapter 2, the second uh, sort of part of uh, Daniel, beginning at verse 24. If you, if you get the sermon title, uh, you may be uh, played Mortal Kombat. I'm not into video games myself, but finish him is a great statement from the 90s. Anyone know? No one here? There's a couple smiling. Most of you are just not impressed. That's fine. Just see the look my wife gives me. <laughs> no one intimidates me here. So, yeah, it's um, good to be in this book, and I am learning a great deal as I go through the book of Daniel, uh, and I hope you will uh, keep on reading through and becoming familiar with the context, and uh, next week, Lord willing, reading chapter 3, having the ideas, the phrases, the content in your mind so that it's not totally fresh to you on a Sunday morning, just a word of encouragement. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 24, therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind." You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. 
and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. You have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Let us pray that God's word would be clearly preached for the sake of our souls. Let us pray. Our Father, with all of the mystery and wonder and symbolism here, we ask for clarity, for conviction, for comfort, and for ultimately a path to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom true wisdom can be found. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Audiences in the early church, when preachers preach, were a little bit uh, different than audiences today. And there are cultural reasons for that. Uh, St. John Chrysostom, as I've told some of you before, was the silver-tongued preacher of the early church. And he was such a good preacher that people would clap at the end of his sermons, sort of like conferences in the United States of America uh, after a speaker speaks. And um, he preached sermon, actually, on one occasion against the clapping after sermons, and it was such a good sermon that they all started clapping even more boisterously. Uh, such was the nature of the sermon. Well, Augustine in 401 in Carthage preached a sermon, and at, as he was preaching the sermon, his hearers would say, Down with Roman gods! Down with Roman gods! And uh, I must confess, I've never quite had that response. Uh, myself. Down with the Liberal Party. Down with the Democrats. You know, that would be the equivalent uh, today. And uh, I can only imagine some of the horror that some of you would have over uh, people screaming those uh, phrases out. The point, though, that Daniel is making is that there is, if not audibly from the people of God during a sermon, there is a sense in which we should be able to say, down with the Roman gods, down with the principalities and powers of this world, down with those worldly kingdoms that are set up against Christ, down with them. 
because this is ultimately a prophecy of the victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of man. Now, how do we get there? Well, I want to help you maybe with a question and answer that you all know And yet, what does it look like practically? So we all know what is the chief end of man in Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, and the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is actually a sermon on that. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, Daniel goes to Arioch, and Arioch has been appointed with killing all of the wise men, including Daniel and his friends. Not particularly an enjoyable task, but who knows with some people. And Arioch has this duty, and Daniel says, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. And notice he doesn't say, do not do this on compassionate or humanitarian grounds. That wouldn't be very nice. Why spill blood? Let's be people of peace. There is only one ground upon which Daniel can go to Arioch and expect any success. And what would that be? To sort out the one problem that Nebuchadnezzar has not been able to sort out. And so Daniel goes and says, bring me before the king and I will show the king its interpretation. Now, Arioch is someone who doesn't know what it is to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And not because it hadn't been framed at that point in history, but because he is like most people in this world. If there is a chance for self-glory, self-honor, he will take it. And how does he do that? He goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and he says, You know what, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have searched high and low. I have checked and double-checked. I have triple-checked. And lo, in all of my hard work, guess what I have been able to do for you? I have been able to find someone who can interpret your dream. Uh, Arioch did nothing of the sort, but he's giving the impression to gain favor with Nebuchadnezzar that he had found Daniel, when in actual fact it was Daniel who found Arioch. And now, you have to see this is just what humans are like. If we can snatch some glory for ourselves, we will. Daniel actually had an opportunity here to snatch glory for himself, but he doesn't. Notice how Daniel speaks to King Nebuchadnezzar. He goes to him and tells him that he can make known the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, obviously very interested in this because he's lost sleep. He hasn't found out what the interpretation is, so he's still troubled. So he's more than interested in what Daniel has to say. And Daniel answered the king and said, Well, nobody else except me knows the interpretation. You see, I am wiser than all of them. He doesn't take that approach. He does take the approach that those charlatans in his court don't know what they're talking about. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show the king the mystery. But what? There is a God. What does it mean to glorify God? It means that when you have an opportunity for self-glory and it will make sense, you still defer to God. You still defer to God. There is a God, verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. How do I know this? Not because I'm wiser, not because I'm better, but God, but God. And then he tells him that he will be able to 
to give him the interpretation. Now, you need to understand something. Remember our Lord when he says, which is easier to say? Take up your mat and walk or that your sins are forgiven. And then he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your mat and walk. In other words, what gives Jesus the authority to forgive sins by simply saying your sins are forgiven? The very fact that he can perform a miracle to validate his authority to do so. Daniel is performing a miracle by telling Nebuchadnezzar first what the dream is. Because remember, that's something nobody else could do. If Daniel had said to all of the magicians, this is what the dream is, they all would have said, perfect, we'll go and interpret this according to all of our vast literature, our omens, our books, and so on. Daniel performs the miracle. He tells the king what only the king knew and what God knew. And he says, To you, O king, behold a great image. And let me just stop again with one minute interlude. Do you notice how specific Daniel is going to be now about his dream? Not a sort of general, not a palm reader, you know. You go to these people and they say, Oh, you're having family troubles. Uh, Oh, I sense you're having pain in your life. Okay, let's just be honest. Who here has no pain in their life right now? Is there someone out here with a sore back? Yeah, me, actually. (laughs) Got a few bad other parts of my body. My feet hurt sometimes. My ankles don't work. Who got out of bed this morning and jumped out of bed and said, oh, what a beautiful morning and streamed down the stairs and had everything going and was singing psalms in their hearts and not tired at all and thought, oh, life is great. Okay, maybe a few of you. I know what some of you are like. But the vast majority of us struggle each day. There's no generalities here. There's no come forward if you, someone is suffering with a headache. This is specific. And there is no doubt in Nebuchadnezzar's mind after Daniel has said, this is what your dream is, that Daniel knew exactly what his dream was. It is an image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, which stood before you and it was frightening, which is why Nebuchadnezzar lost sleep. And he explains the image which we have already read. He gives very specific detail. And then he says, that was the dream. That was the dream. And there's a very important verse at the end of verses 31 to 35. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You need to keep that in the background now of what you're going to hear in terms of the interpretation. What is the interpretation? Well, the interpretation is such. And we are offered the interpretation. So it's kind of funny. I was thinking about this this week. Here's the text verse 31 to 35, and then Daniel gives the interpretation. He's one of the modern preachers, right? He gives the interpretation of the text. And so now I am telling you what the dream is. Then I'm telling you what Daniel's interpretation is. And then I have to give the interpretation of the interpretation. And I can assure you, some people have got very carried away with the interpretation of the interpretation. 
And I don't think it's altogether wrong. So what is the general interpretation? Well, there are these kingdoms, and these are historical kingdoms. So the first kingdom is the kingdom represented by the gold head. And you can see that Nebuchadnezzar would be most pleased with this interpretation. Because when he speaks to him, and it's reminiscent of Genesis 1 in the great creation mandate to Adam, he says, You, O king, the king of kings, the one who has established the ancient wonder of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon with walls so high that had never been seen before and bridges that even defy modern day explanations how grandiose Babylon was to you, King of Kings, to whom God has given kingdom and power and might and glory into whose hand He has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. That's Genesis 1.28. And that language is being used of Nebuchadnezzar. That's about as glorifying as a human being can get. You are the head of gold. And I suspect Nebuchadnezzar quite enjoyed the interpretation. Who would not want to be the head of gold? Uh, And... I suspect there are a few world leaders who would like to be the head of gold living today. One actually does have a head that looks like gold, but I digress. Then there's another kingdom. And many interpreters have taken this to be the Medo-Persian kingdom in 539 uh, BC. So the Babylonian kingdom did fall to the Medo-Persian kingdom and it was uh, roughly 200 years. And after the Medo-Persian kingdom, you have uh, the Greek kingdom, Alexander the Great and his conquering of the world. And then after the Uh, kingdom of Alexander the Great, you have the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire is the fourth of these kingdoms that are listed here. And the Roman Empire uh, ultimately collapses because of immorality, which is hinted at in the text. And so people have uh, gone to all the dates and looked at all of the historical unfolding and have been most impressed with the fact that Daniel accurately predicts the various kingdoms that arise and fall over the course of history leading up to Rome. Now, I'm not in disagreement with that basic interpretation, but I will say this. This statue is not merely representative of those historic kingdoms, though it certainly does seem to lean that way. This statue is representative of all worldly kingdoms, all kingdoms set up in opposition to Christ, that just as this little stone that is cut out from the rock overthrows this statue, It is symbolic of the fact that the rock which is Christ and His people and grows to be a great mountain is going to overthrow every kingdom. If there should be another great kingdom in the future, a thousand years from now, it will fall in the same way that these kingdoms fell. They are all signified in this great figure that Nebuchadnezzar saw. So you don't think, well, this refers to those four kingdoms, but what happens if another kingdom arises? What statue will that be? It's all contained in this statue of worldliness as opposed to Christ. And how do we know Christ is this stone? Because the New Testament leaves us in no doubt about that in many, many different places. 
But in one place, we're told in Luke chapter 20, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. And the context is clearly speaking about Christ. But this stone that overthrows this great statue is not merely Christ, but it is Christ and His people. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. That we are part of this overthrowing of these kingdoms that will never last and that will ultimately fail. Now that's about as much as I want to get into because I think too many people preach this text and they want to get into the precise dates of Medo-Persia, of Greece, of all of this, that you end up walking away going, oh, that was an interesting historical lesson, but they miss the point of what's actually taking place. And that's a very dangerous thing to do from the pulpit is to get carried away with date setting and miss what is it that God is teaching us. Well, notice that King Nebuchadnezzar is in no doubt about the fact that what Daniel has said is not only true since he knew what he dreamt, but the interpretation, therefore, must be true because Daniel has this supernatural wisdom conveyed to him. So he falls upon his face. Isn't it interesting that Daniel begins in verse 37 of extolling King Nebuchadnezzar as perhaps the greatest human being in all the earth, then speaks a few more words, and this great king of kings, this great king of lords, this great king who has dominion and authority given to him is now prostrating himself before a Jewish exile. That's how quickly things can turn with God. And so he makes an offering to him. And makes a confession that I don't believe to be born out of a true conversion yet. But he says, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries. For you, you alone, have been able to reveal this mystery. And he is rewarded handsomely. And Daniel, true to form, never missteps at any point in the book of Daniel. Never once says, Remember my friends, Remember those who prayed with me in seeking out this mystery, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and they are also honored. Now, what can we take from this second half of the chapter? Well, I want us to keep in mind a few points. The first is this. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's unreasonableness in what he was requiring of the magicians, the enchanters, and so on. Remember that a wicked king's unreasonableness in society may be an opportunity for God. In all of your distress over what may be happening in the world, in this country, that country, our own country, whatever may be happening at various levels of government, whatever wickedness you may see afar and at home, it may be an opportunity for God. Looking as a Jewish exile, what could be worse than being exiled from the promised land, from leaving the place of worship, from having your customs and your language and your diet and everything taken from you, from having Jerusalem overthrown to a rubble, and you go and there's this wicked king who wants to seek your lives and kill you. And lo and behold, moments later, he's fallen down prostrate before a Jewish exile. 
With God, all things are possible. He is never in a position of anxiety and distress. He's God. Now, God also takes extreme measures with Nebuchadnezzar. One of the most shocking conversions, as we will find out, found anywhere in Scripture, it seems as though he doesn't quite go to the same lengths with anyone else in Scripture as he does with Nebuchadnezzar. And you may be thinking, well, Nebuchadnezzar had these revelations and these dreams. God was powerfully present in his life. He revealed to him things. And you know what upset me this week? What upset me this week is that we've conceded far too much ground to the charismatics. Uh, What do I mean by that? I know some of you are listening very carefully right now. Yes, brother Steve. We've, gained, we've given up far too much ground. People who want to say here and then, oh, I believe the Lord spoke to me and this and that, and I just want to say, oh, that's cute. He talked to you once, did he? Or a few times. We mustn't be those who are conceding ground and trying to say, well, hold on now, cessationism, nothing else. God reveals it's all contained in the Bible. We need nothing else. We've given up far too much ground. We should actually be saying the opposite. Listen, God is shouting at us every day in various ways. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go and have a dream tonight and then we have to add it to Scripture. What I'm saying is that God does still speak to us in various ways through providence, through people speaking to us in our lives, through events that happen in this world. I had a young lady this week. She texted me. I know her very well. And she had a dream. And in her dream, she had someone confront her about her faith and whether she was for real. And she said she woke up. And she says after she woke up, she was really convicted about the fact that in high school she hadn't always taken her faith seriously and that she really needed to start taking God more seriously. And she started confessing some of her sins and saying, I've been selfish at times. I've been this and that. Now again, I'm not suggesting we need to put that into the book of Revelation and say, well, you know, what I am saying is that God does speak to us in the way in which sometimes He alerts us. Something happens in this world and we go, you know what? Someone's just died. Some young girl, 20 years old, as I've got to know a few soccer coaches in this whole recruiting process, one coach's daughter, 20 years old, dies August 27th. God has kept my kids so far alive to this day and you see God's goodness. You see that God doesn't owe us any extra days with our kids or ourselves. And you have to see that's God speaking to us. God shouting at us. Sometimes He brings an illness on us. Sometimes He brings a blessing on us. Sometimes He does all sorts of things and He's getting us to listen to Him. In other words, we don't say, oh, Maybe God will speak to me one day. We say God's speaking to us every day. Yes, in His Word principally, but in our lives generally, when someone has a word of encouragement or a word of exhortation, God uses means to accomplish ends. You may not get the dream, and I don't think you will, that Nebuchadnezzar has. And I don't think that you're going to be called the King of Kings in all the world, anyone here. I may be wrong. 
And I don't think you're going to be a head of gold. But I also don't think that God isn't shouting at a lot of you in your lives in various ways when various things happen. But then finally, I want us to also notice another important theme in Scripture. And maybe we don't emphasize this or I don't emphasize this enough and should. We believe in the humiliation of Christ, in the suffering servant. We believe that what he says in Luke 24 is true, that was it not necessary that the Son of Man should suffer, that the Scriptures teach of principally his death on the cross and weakness is the way and the way in which humility is to be a thing that we recognize part and parcel of the Christian life. But while that's true, I want you to notice that in Scripture, not only is humiliation pronounced loudly and clearly, but so is Christ's exaltation. So is the victory. So is the honor. So is the glory. That when you read Psalm 2, what is Psalm 2? But an announcement of victory. Kiss the Son, lest in His wrath you perish. What's the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament? 110. Sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool. That we need not be ashamed of the Gospel. That we need not be ashamed of the fact that we will win. That we are part of this rock that is going to overthrow these nations. And that there will be a kingdom to which you and I belong that will endure forever and ever and ever. You need not be ashamed to be a Christian. You should be telling people, I'm a Christian. That I serve the Lord. Take every opportunity to say, I'm a Christian. You should be confident. Not in a godless way, but in a godly way. Godly confidence. Godly pride. Our God reigns. Our Savior sitting on a throne. He's going to overthrow all of these nations. I don't need to worry. And that it's going to be a glorious thing. As Isaiah says in chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. How many nations do we have in our little church alone? How many nationalities? How many people born in foreign countries? How many people of different skin colors, of different languages? Isaiah said this would happen. Daniel knew this would happen. David knew this would happen. Christ knew that this would happen. And many peoples, verse 3, shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. Do not be ashamed of the glory that belongs to God's people. Because our Savior is not on a cross anymore. He is enthroned in the heavenly places and it is His kingdom that will overthrow every other kingdom. And we will win. And Nebuchadnezzar will find out that through much humiliation and suffering that he will be part of that mountain one day. 
and that will bring his own gold head into complete insignificance compared to what God will give him forever. And if that is true for a king who would eat from the grass and become like an animal, how much more for us who belong to Christ now. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we pray that we may have our hope increased, not as a faint hope, not as a hopeful hope, but as a certain hope of the glories that belong to God's people and the freedom that gives us as we live in this world to know that whatever wicked rulers may come and go, the righteous ruler will live forever and that we will share in that victory. O Lord, help us to overthrow through our prayers, through the preaching and through the spread of the gospel, the kingdoms of this world so that the kingdom of God may increase to that great mountain of the Lord where all nations will come and serve their God and King. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Before we sing our final hymn, we'll have the offering.